right, so let's talk about angels, demons, and Satan. That's what we're going to talk about. It's our fifth study. Um, they've done a couple of updates to our website, so kind of you have the notes in one place and the sermons in, in the other. And um, if you clicked on one, you couldn't find the notes. If you clicked on the other, you couldn't find the sermon. That's been taken care of. So some of you were, um, uh, brought that to our attention. So if you go out there and you, however you were going, the easiest way is just go up to our website. On the far right, you'll see something called Doctrine Series. If you click on that, it'll take you to the, the, the teaching and then the notes for your download, if you are interested. So God's creation contains, obviously, that which is seen and that which is unseen. We're very familiar with the seen. We're very familiar with being able to look at God's creation. The mountains, the ocean, we're able to see the animal kingdom, we're able to see one another. And we see this and we rejoice in it and we even worship the Lord because of it. But there's also an unseen element that generates a lot of interest and a lot of bad teaching and a lot of spurious thoughts and um, hopefully we can just allow the Word of God to instruct us and teach us on what the Bible says about this unseen realm. I'm not saying I'm going to cover every aspect of the unseen realm tonight. That would be uh, the angels, um, demons, and Satan. But we will get a good base for you to launch out and study more. So among the topics that we're going to be considering, we're going to talk about the nature, the ministry, the creation, and destiny. And so when we get to ministry, um, we'll just call it activity of Satan and demons. But, but as we think about angels, that's where we're going to head first. And so let's talk about angels. Um, angels are found in the Old Testament as well in the New Testament. All kinds of references to them. And so what do we mean by an angel? Now, the Hebrew word for angel is malak. And the English, or the Greek word for angel is angelos. And they both mean the same exact thing. A human messenger, a human messenger is one of the possible uh, meanings. So um, if you are going to uh, refer to um, an angelos and you're referring to a, a person, you're probably going to say a messenger and you wouldn't see it translated as an angel. But that's certainly how we would divide it up in our mind as a messenger versus angel. And, of course, when we think about angels, though, we mostly think about those spiritual beings that have been created by God to do his work. And so we're going to talk about this, these angels. And we begin with um, the fact that there is an existence of angels. Um, I don't think many people really debate this idea, but the Bible is very clear that they exist they minister to the Lord, to uh, mankind, and they operate normally in that unseen realm. Um, the Bible makes reference to them, again, from Genesis to Revelation. There are 175 references to the supernatural, so not the human form of the angelos, but the, um, the, the spiritual being. 175 references to these these messengers of the Lord. So that, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? And affirmation to the existence of these uh, supernatural, finite, not infinite, right? Finite beings um, comes from the Lord himself. Jesus himself 
referred to them. There's a couple of places you could find that. But Matthew 24, verses 30 through 31 in the Olivet Discourse, and when Jesus is talking about what's going to happen at the end of the age, we read, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's referring to, it's an Old Testament quote, actually, um, from the four uh, corners. That's an Old Testament quote from Isaiah referring to the nation of Israel who has been scattered through the tribulation. But you see there that the angels are the ones that are going to do it. They are going to serve in that capacity. The point simply here is angels exist and Jesus believed in them and Jesus taught about even their future work. But when did they come into existence? When did angels actually come on the scene? And we can't nail that down with you know, any great detail, but we do know that angels are created by the Lord. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, and the him here is Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him, that would be Jesus, and for him, Jesus. So Jesus is the one that created the unseen realm. And part of the unseen realm is these, these principalities or powers, which Paul will later refer to in Ephesians as um, uh, on the fallen side as demons, but on the side of those that um, have not fallen, um, you have those that are ministering spirits to us. So clear testimony um, to angels um, and mankind all finding their existence in the work and the creation of our Lord, the Lagos. Job makes an interesting reference um, to these uh, beings and the day of their creation. It's Job 38, verses 6 and 7. And it says, To what were its foundations fastened? Fastened, speaking of creation. Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So there seems to be this connection that they at least, at the very least, were there um, at creation. And they saw this. So the question is, well, how far before creation of this world were they? And, and we just can't answer that with any certainty. So you can speculate all you want, but at the end of the day, that's all you've done is speculated. But we know they were there, and they saw at least one aspect of creation. So these angels are amazing beings, and if you've read about them, you, you, you know this to be the case. But they are still only created beings. And we, got, we must be careful that we don't give them worship or adoration or I'll even say um, a preoccupation with them um, because they just are not worthy of that. Revelation 19.10, John fell at his feet, some of these angels, to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. Stop what you don't do that. I, no way. I am your fellow servant. I'm a slave too. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So angels do not want to be worshipped. And they should not be worshipped. The other thing that I want to say is just is in this is to note 
that man was created on the sixth day. Angels are not noted as being created on the sixth day. Um, it's not mentioned at all. At some point, they were created. But angels are not good people who have gone to heaven. And I think a lot of people view it that way. Now, I think some do that just because they don't know the Bible. I think some do that to try and comfort themselves in the loss of that loved one. It's like, well, they're an angel in heaven now. Um, no, they're better than that, actually. That's, that's, no. They are the ones that are created in the image of God. They're not an angel. They're one that is in the presence of the Lord. So really... Uh, no offense, Gabriel or Michael, but to refer to your loved one who's passed away as an angel is a downgrade. That's not an upgrade. We are already created in the image of God, and that is beautiful. So I, I understand why people do this sometimes because it, it helps them comfort. Well, they're just an angel. They're there. No, they are in the presence of the Lord if they are a follower of Jesus Christ, and they are, they've never been better. But we should not confuse them as being an angel. Uh, angels don't want to receive worship. Well, how many angels are there? Um, I don't have this reference for you, but let me see if I can just turn there real quick. I think I can do that. I've done that once or twice in my life. Revelation chapter 5 gives us an indication um, of how many angels there are. It's kind of fun. It's a fun verse to, to look at. So Revelation 5.11 says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, and then we have the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Translation, millions, maybe billions of people are gathered around the throne room. Now you have elders, not many of those, right? We, we got their number. This is not, this is... Uh, a handful, but you have these created beings and you have these angels and there is millions of them that the Lord has created. So um, you want, might want to look at some other ones. So that's uh, Revelation 5.11. Let me give you some other verses for uh, where it talks about the number of them. Deuteronomy 33.2, Psalm 68.17, Hebrews 12.22. And so, as Wayne Grudem says in his Systematic Theology book, he says, an amazingly large number of angels exist. And um, these are the places where we can get that. So, they're created being, and there's a lot of them, not to be confused with man. But what about their nature? You know, what is it about an angel that makes them um, different? So, while man has been created in the image of God and is able to serve and worship him, we are not the only one in God's creation, who possess personhood. Okay, We know that God is a person, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Um, we know that we are people, right? But angels also have personhood, not being created in the image of God, but they have a personhood. And um, so these are not just kind of like forces that are out there, some of them doing good things, some of them doing bad. They, are act, they, they possess personhood. Um, and angels are represented in Scripture as powerful, as intelligent, and faithful servants of the Lord. We're not talking about fallen angels yet, okay? Demons. We're only talking about um, those who are without iniquity, who have remained in the state in which God originally created them. And angels are noted in Scripture as being, and this is, 
hang on, because I'm going to mess up some of your little cherub collections. Angels are noted in Scripture as those that are spirit, and they are not those who have a material body. We'll get to the, yeah, but what about in just a moment. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? It's a great verse, isn't it? I'm using it in the sense of their nature. We'll come back to this verse and consider it in a different way in, in, in just a couple of minutes. But they are ministering spirits. Um, angels lack a physical, that they lack a physical body is further illustrated in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Let me ask you, do we wrestle against flesh and blood? No. We don't, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now here we are talking about fallen angels, okay? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there's that whole unseen realm that's unpacked by Paul right there. This is where our, uh, so much of our spiritual battle, don't think that that's where it all exists. It'd be, it, it would be nice if it was just that. But the, it's not just that. You know who else is a part of that whole wrestling and fighting and, and battling to walk in holiness? It's you and it's me. And so every morning when we wake up, we're there. So we know that it's going to be a potentially bad day, <laughs> right? We know that we are capable of falling in sin and being tempted and being led away. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Angels don't have this. Um, Millard Erickson, in his Christian theology um, book, says, It seems safe to conclude that angels are spiritual beings. They do not have physical or material bodies. But wait a minute. There are times when they appeared and people saw them. And that is absolutely true. Abraham, Lot, Daniel, Mary, just to name a few, all saw a physical manifestation so it seems that at times the Lord will grant these spirits temporary manifestations for the purposes that God has sent them on. So they will come. If you want, you can call these maybe angelophanies, right? We heard of a theophany or Christophany, uh, Old Testament appearance of Christ, um, angelophany. But it should be noted that And we talked about this when we talked about um, the Lord, is that sometimes the Lord appears as an angel of the Lord. And this is where people get messed up and twisted up. An angel, angels are a created being. God is not created. Time out. Let's go back to what the definition of an angel is. An angel is a messenger, right? And so the Lord will come bringing message to his creation, and he will at times take on a physical form, and he is referred to as a messenger, a malak, an angel of the Lord. Um, so this can happen, and um, I think we just, we just need to, to be aware of that. So that can take place. Um, some examples of this would be Genesis 16, verses 7 through 13, Genesis 18, 1 through 21, Genesis 19, 1 through 28, where you see not a angelic being, but you see the Lord taking on human form in the Old Testament. Um, so but the, the difficulty is when it's referred to an angel of the Lord, we, we have to look at the context. We've got to study through 
And look, is it being worshipped? Does he say that he's God? Is he called God? Um, and if these are the things you begin to see, then you know that that is not an angel because angels are not God, nor should they be worshipped. So there's only one that can be worshipped. So you're, you really come down to some pretty slim uh, pickings of what that can be. And that would be an Old Testament appearance of Christ. So just to note that when we talk about um, angels taking on a manifestation, um, being spiritual beings, um, not to confuse that for when the Lord is referred to as an angel of the Lord. Angels um, are not subject to the fa- same physical limitations that, that we are. And I'm going to quote to you, and I have the quote up there for you. This is from Paul Inns in the Moody Book, Handbook of Theology. He says, Angels are not subject to the limitations of man, especially since they are incapable of death. Luke 20, verse 36. Angels have greater wisdom than man. 2 Samuel 14, 20. Yet is limited, Matthew 24, 36. Angels have greater power than man. Got a handful of references there. Matthew 28, Acts 5, 2 Peter 2. But they are limited in power. Daniel 10, verse 13. And this is where you find one was wrestling with the prince of Persia and had to wait till Michael came and helped. So they're not like, they're not omnipotent like God. But um, they are some pretty amazing created beings. Um, so just for, uh, for us to know. Um, they're finite beings. They're not infinite. So not to confuse the two. Um, they have some greater um, capabilities than us. But they are unable to enjoy the intimacy of marriage. Or the fullness of the future glorified state of the redeemed. Or the fullness of of the future glorified state of the redeemed. And that would be found in 1 Corinthians 6.3. So you might want to write that one down. I don't have the reference up there for you. But um, you can see that there is a, a place that we have that is greater than theirs in the future. Well, when we talk about angels, there's millions of them, but what are the categorizations? What's the organization structure that is in place of angels? And um, that they have a structure and rank seems to be clear from that Ephesians 6, 12 passage that we read. You might also look at Jude chapter, nine, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. And this speaks of Michael being an archangel. So there seems to be rank. There seems to be those that have a position. Um, so that title for Michael would think, lead us to believe he has more authority than others. Um, Gabriel is another angel of great importance in Scripture, and he seems to specialize in delivering messages. Um, And you can think about Daniel, you can think about him coming in the Gospel of Luke to Mary and so forth. So um, these are the names of two angels that we know, and Michael seems to have great authority, and Gabriel seems to be put out on some very important missions. But besides mentioning these two angels by name, Scripture speaks of, and in my notes I've got an error, it says two classes or orders of angels. It should actually be three classes or orders of angels. And the first is the seraphim. Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And remember Isaiah seen the glory of the Lord, the train of his robe filled the temple. And um, these uh, seraphim are crying out and worshiping the Lord, holy, holy, holy. One takes a coal from the altar, touches my lips, and 
I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The Lord says, who shall I send? And he says, send me. But we see that there are seraphim that are mentioned in that place. Um, and they are ones that are found in the throne room of God, worshiping the Lord. The second order of angels, to which we are the most familiar with, are the cherubim. And the cherubim, one author writes, ends, Paul ends, writes, and he says, are of the highest order of, or class, created with indescribable powers and beauty. Their main purpose and activity might be summarized in this way. They are the proclaimers and protectors of God's glorious presence, his sovereignty, and his holiness. So what leads us to the conclusion that they are of the highest order? We'll get to it in a moment, but Satan was a cherub. Cherub. And so cherubim. So he is that one that um, is, you'll, when we read it, you'll see it was of the greatest authority. But we see them first in Genesis chapter 3, believe it or not, that early on. Genesis chapter 3, right after the sin in the garden, they are found in verse 24, standing, guarding entrance into the garden. But we also see the cherubim show up in an interesting place that we've been studying about on Sunday morning. Where is that? On the mercy seat. That's right. Their wings are stretched out. And, and actually, even in some of the... the, the um, the, the curtains that are hanging around there, they're going to be in that as well. So why would they be there? So uh, while I said we shouldn't worship angels and we shouldn't be preoccupied with angels, um, we should understand them, I think, in a biblical view. We should be you know, um, thankful that they are ministering to us. We should be thankful um, for God's creation of them. But it is interesting that he chooses to include them in a very visible way, there in the tabernacle, and later on, of course, in the temple. And so, the, why? Why would they be there? This, I think, gives us a strong indication that when you are in the temple in heaven, that the cherub, cherubim are there and ministering um, in that place. Um, so those are a few places where we find the mention. So we have the seraphim, we have the cherubim, and then we have the third type of angel that is mentioned as the living creatures. We already referenced them when we read Revelation 5.11. But let, let me take you back into the book of Revelation because these guys are pretty amazing. We, these guys are pretty amazing. I mean, we know the seraphim um, are in the presence of the Lord. But here, let's look at Revelation 4 verses 6 through 8. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures each had six wings, full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. So this is just a little bit about the, the, the organization, the types of angels that are there. But what about their ministry? We read that they were, um, in Hebrews 1.14, that they're ministering spirits sent forth to minister uh, to those who will inherit salvation. That's you and that's me. That's all that have gone before us. So this is the last topic on, on angels, and it's one that probably we are the most interested in because it directly impacts us. They minister to us. That's exciting to think about, is that some, some 
being in the unseen realm is at work and is doing certain works on our behalf. Do we know what they are? Sometimes we do. Maybe sometimes we don't. Um, But I love this description that Moody gives, Paul Lenz gives in his Moody Handbook of Theology as to the six different things that they do. Number one, they provide physical protection. Psalm 34, verse 7. Um, I believe this is the, the passage that Satan uses on Jesus and says, hey, throw yourself off the temple. He's not going to let you dash your foot against a stone. Second, physical provision, 1 Kings 19, 5 through 7. Um, third way is encouragement in Acts chapter 27, 23 through 25. They give direction in Acts 8, 26. This is um, Philip leaving from Samaria to go down to the, where the Ethiopian eunuch was. Um, and then this one I love, number five, assisting in answers to prayer. So this is Peter um, being sprung from prison <laughs> and the angels there to help with that. So at times when you pray, the Lord will send angels to help bring about that answer. Um, and then to carry believers home, you can look in Luke 16, verse 22. So some ways in which angels are ministering, we should be grateful, we should not be preoccupied, we should be sober about angels and their ministry, we should not venerate them, we should be amazed and worship the Lord for these amazing beings that he's created in the same way we can look at any other aspect of God's creation and give him praise. Now granted, they have direct ministry to us, which brings us into an interesting relationship with them. So it'll be interesting when we get to heaven, if there's any record of the work of angels, if you can do any, I don't know, searches up there, go into the archives and look and see, look up your name and see at what time angels have gone to work on your behalf. Um, I don't ever know of any time that I've, I have seen that happen, um, but I do believe that it's happened. And um, I, you know, I think that if they're there to minister to us, God is deploying them. He seems to have a large army of them to do his bidding. Um, but just be careful of not becoming preoccupied and certainly not worshiping. Well, let's talk about demons. Uh, you know, these are a fallen form of the angels. Um, so when we talk about angels that have not fallen into sin, but have remained in their perfect state of sinless, it's not long before you begin to talk about those that have fallen. And these beings are prominently present in the New Testament, the Gospel, and the book of Acts. As Jesus and the disciples go about Serving the Father, demons are presented as possessing people and disrupting the ministry the whole while through. So let's talk about three aspects. The reality, their nature, and their activity. So the reality of demons. When you begin to talk about demons, you know that if you're saying this to people maybe that are not as uh, informed in Scripture with you, that you may be looked at as being a weirdo for talking about them. But that the Bible refers to them, both Old Testament and New Testament, it is found all throughout Scripture. 
So there you evil different names are used for demons. It could be evil spirits, it could be an unclean spirit, it could be spirits, it could be an unclean demon, it could be rulers and authorities and powers, like in Ephesians um, chapter six. So there's a lot of different titles or ways in which um, names are assigned to them. And they are all basically synonymous and used interchangeably, even within a single passage. So, for example, Luke chapter 8, verse 2. A certain woman had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, of whom had come seven demons. So you can see that they're referred to as demons and evil spirits. So these are interchangeable terms that you find. Again, those terms are evil spirits, unclean spirits, spirits, spirit of an unclean demon, and rulers, authorities, and powers. So these are interchangeable terms. So if you only look for the word demon, you probably are going to come up with a, well, you will come up with a shorter list of verses than you would if you were to expand it out to these other titles. And there are many occasions when the Lord um, was out ministering that he cast out these evil spirits from people who were controlled by them and possessed by them. And these accounts give us clear affirmation, affirmation that Jesus believed in the existence of demons and had the power to stop them. He didn't have a problem, and he didn't feel like he was on the, the fringe of uh, sanity when he began to rebuke and to cast demons out. He believed that they were real. As a matter of fact, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16, verses 15 through 18, Jesus speaks of how believers would cast out demons. Now that's a long section of Mark. I, I'm aware of that, and I am still giving that as a reference without any question at all. Charles Ryrie uh, states, To deny the reality of demons requires ignoring or denying the truth of many passages in Scripture. I don't know how you can be a, a believer in the Bible and say that you know, demons are not real. They're real. And they are all over the pages of the Bible, especially the New Testament. So there is a reality of that realm of fallen angels. So as to the nature of them, well, there I said it. They are fallen angels. These are the ones who followed Satan in his rebellion against God, and they sought to overthrow him. And so they were cast out, and now they await a final judgment. What is the job of uh, uh, angels who have kept their perfect state? The job of those angels is to be what to us? They minister to us. A fallen angel has the goal to corrupt you. It's not hard to make that you know, leap and that conclusion. And especially as you look at many places in Scripture where that is specifically or explicitly stated um, of what they're trying to do. That the demons are fallen angels seems to be pretty clear. 2 Timothy 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels who sinned. Got that? Angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So angels sinned. And these became fallen angels or what we refer to as demons. Jude Verse 6 says, And the angels who do not keep their proper domain, but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So this is a special group of them that 
sinned in a special particular way that I am not going to get off into tonight, but I wouldn't mind talking about it. So Louis Burkhoff says, Two passages that I just read in Scripture which clearly imply that some of the angels did not retain their original position, but fell from their state in which they were created. So this is, a, this is, not, this is not really a debated point among Bible-believing uh, Christians. And in Matthew 12, verses 24 through 26, and I'll read it to you in just a moment. Um, Satan is represented as the leader of the demons. So this is, you know, probably you're like, yeah, I know that. But it's just even for myself, I was was going there, I was like, well, where do you actually, where is that stated, right? So here it is. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Okay, that's not real helpful yet. We know there's a ruler of the demons, though. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? So there you see that the ruler of the demons is Satan himself. So that's, that's who these guys are. I mean, they are fallen beings that were led away in rebellion. We'll talk a little bit more about the rebellion in just a moment. Let's talk about their activity. Again, perfect angels, those who have not sinned, minister to us. But fallen angels stand in opposition to the work of God among men. That is so clearly seen. These fallen beings seek to accomplish their plans through lies and through deceptions. One of God's highest priorities is for, man, for men and women to receive redemption that's found in the gospel. Therefore, you can expect demons to stand in opposition to that. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we read, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should, should shine. So the God of this age and his demonic horde are out to blind people to the gospel because God's work today is to bring people to salvation through the gospel not surprising Paul told Timothy that these fallen spirits are the source behind the perversion of sound doctrine now you, you're going to get in trouble if you say this but it's, it, I mean, I'm saying that I'm not saying don't say it but you know what, you're, you know, we're supposed to applaud all religions and to you know, hold them up and to um, be pluralist. And we believe all of these things are just wonderful. Really? 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of what? Demons. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Enjoy your pulled pork sandwich. By those who believe and know the truth. So you can see what, that they're blinding people. And then they're coming up with whole systems to lead people astray. 
We cannot look, although we can have a love for all people, we are, and we are commanded to, and although we should have a, a respect for them and, and look to help them and serve them, we must preach the gospel to them because if they are not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they are believing in a lie that will keep them from having redemption. And if you're worried about saying something that's going to offend them, then you're probably not going to preach the gospel. Does the gospel, does the message of Christ upset people? Jesus said you can count on it. He says, if they didn't like me, I'll guarantee you they're not going to like you. You're not greater than the master. And if they did this to me, they're going to do it to you. So let's not be surprised by this. One of the prominent work of demons in the gospel, so in the gospels, is so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, was that of possessing individuals. You can find those references on your own or look them up in my notes. Additionally, it is recorded that demons were often the cause of affliction. We even read that in that one passage that um, I, was Luke 8, 2. A certain woman who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom seven demons came. So there are times when a physical affliction is connected with the work of a demon. And so in the Gospels, we see him being the cause of them being the cause of blindness, muteness, seizures, all being attributed to the work of demons. So while demons can possess and deceive and lie and blind um, spiritually, they can also afflict people physically. But that does not mean, please hear me on this. That does not mean that everybody who has a sickness or an illness has an affliction of a demon. That just is, that, that is just so wrong. Um, it should be noted, though, that demons can afflict people physically, but not always. I want you to think about Paul's traveling companion, um, Trophimus. And how he was traveling with him, he had to end up staying behind and could travel no further. 2 Timothy 4, 19-20. And in this, you find zero mention to the effect that this person was uh, attacked spiritually. There was no demonic activity. And if there would have been, I think we would have saw Paul move into action and pray for that spirit's work to be bound. So, while we should be clear that a demon can afflict somebody physically, not in every case. I wouldn't even say in most cases. I would just say, if you're not sure, don't say it. And if you say it, then there ought to be some wonderful outcome and conclusion to it all. So again, Charles Ryrie on this says, of course, not all physical or mental problems result from demonic activity. Actually, the Bible distinguishes natural illness from demonic ones. And there's a whole bunch of references that he gives. So here it is. The only sound biblical conclusion is that some sickness is caused by the activity of demons and some is simply the result of living in a fallen world. And I am sorry if somebody has told you that the sickness that you have is a result of you having a demon and that that messed your understanding up of God and why he would allow that. Listen, um, 
when a demon is present in at work, I believe it will be clearly known. So this is a, a, a teaching that's out there. It's either, you know, you don't have enough faith or it's a demon, um, which is like, where can you justify that kind of um, complete explanation for sickness? You can't find it in the Bible. So we need to be very careful. Um, so while we have these guys that we are contending with, right, I think it's important for us to know we have victory over them in Jesus. We have victory over them in Jesus. Colossians 2.15 says of Jesus, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He triumphed over them. What is the, the image of a, of, of a public spectacle is that of a, a general that has just defeated a city, dragging the king or whoever the ranking power was on that battlefield out in front of everybody, throwing him to the ground and putting his foot upon his neck. And it's just, it was a way to just say, I won and he lost. Jesus triumphed over Satan when he died on the cross, and rose from the dead. All principalities and powers have been disarmed. Paul writing to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, that the believer can stand strong against the host of wickedness. He tells us to suit up, right? You're familiar with the, the, the um, spiritual armor we're supposed to put on, that we may be able to stand against a spiritual host of wickedness. Because we can. We can. First uh, John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So while they exist, they should not freak us out, because King Jesus has already defeated them. And this is, gives us great victory, right? This is where we find our hope. So when we talk about these, a topic that often comes up is that of demon possession among Christians or demonization of Christians. So what am I talking about? I am talking if I'm talking about the teaching that says a Christian, a born-again believer, has to have be released through an exorcism or whatever they want to call it, a deliverance ministry, and in order to live a righteous life to have control over their decision and their will. I don't believe that. I don't believe that, that they have that sort of influence. Do they have a, a point of impact and influence upon us? Yes, and we'll talk about it in just a moment. But it's not demon possession or demonization. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. So this idea that I am controlled by a demon, therefore I have the spirit of gluttony, or I have the spirit of lust, or I have the spirit of anger, or the spirit of, you know, unstoppable Amazon shopping, or whatever it is that you want to, you say, you know, it's a spirit. Well, wait a minute. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So the idea that a believer could not walk a holy, righteous life because a demon is pre, pre, uh, 
preventing them by having a control over them. Read all of Romans chapter 6 and you cannot come to that conclusion. In writing to believers, Paul stated that Christ and Belial, or Satan, cannot dwell together because a believer is the temple of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 14-16 Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace... Oh man, I got the wrong reference. It's um, maybe 1 Corinthians. I even made this correction in my notes and it's still wrong. I must not have saved it. Uh, who's got the uh, search? Because I really want this one to be seen. Look where Christ and Belial. Six. Okay, that's what it is. Thank you, Paul. So turn. I'm going to turn there. You can turn there as well. Second Corinthians chapter six. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's it. Second Corinthians six verse fourteen. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? He's setting it up. And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. So we are the dwelling place of God. The Holy Spirit, uh, when we got saved, immediately came to indwell this temple, this, this man, and each of you. So where is it that Satan's demon can find space to possess you? They cannot dwell together. I mean, honestly, do you think that God is going to be roommates? I realize that's kind of, you know, a little trivial there. But he's going to be roommates with Satan inside of your heart? You're, you, the temple of the living God? Of course he's not going to do that. So no, we cannot be controlled and, and possessed that we have no ability to make a choice. I think the other point that I'll make, and then we'll start to wrap this up, is there is no teaching found on this in the Bible. So, listen, whatever we believe, whatever our practice is, we must have foundation in Scripture for that practice or for that belief. So are we to understand that a believer can be controlled by a demon after getting saved and there is not a single reference to that or any instruction on how to deal with that? Zero. None. I am feel quite confident that if the Lord wanted us or if that was the case, he would instruct us that we might be able to know how to deal with this. So while it is possible for an unbeliever to become possessed by a demon, this possibility is removed at the time of salvation for believers. That being said, he does. we do have interaction with him. He can harass us, and he certainly seeks to influence us in many different ways. Let me give you a few references. Luke chapter 4, verse 2. 
We see this in how Satan did this even with Jesus. Being tempted for 40 days by the devil. So Satan can come and tempt us. Now, I think demons can as well. Do I think that I've ever been t- uh, tempted by the devil? I don't, that I've ever been te- I don't know that I rank high enough on that list of people he wants to tempt. I'm sure the demons have, <laughs> I can assure you, they've been at work. But Satan, I think it's understandable why it would have been Satan himself and not a demon. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So we can be tempted. This is, we're talking about the things that, uh, and the activity of demons as it relates to a believer. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. I got all kinds of questions about that that I don't have answers for, but it's there. And so there you have it. He can buffet us. Uh, Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. We read this a couple of times. So we have, we wrestle for walking in, uh, uprightly. There is this battle that goes on. So we certainly wrestle with him. He buffets us. He, temp- he tempts us. Um, James 4.7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So he will come against us. And will seek to draw us down, but we must resist him. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. So these are the things that we read about in Scripture. He tempts, he buffets, we wrestle with him, we can resist him, and he seeks to devour us. But one other place, Ephesians 2.7 says that we should not give place to the devil. We should not, to believers, nor give place to the devil. Don't give him a place to launch his attack against you, to tempt you, to devour you, um, that you might lose in a wrestling match with him. Don't give place. Don't give a foothold. Don't give him a, a toehold, okay? Don't give him a place to attack from you. Well, what does that even look like? That looks like you... Rolling that bitterness over in your heart over and over again. And you don't fight it off. And you continue to give him that. You're giving him place in your life. That is one example of how that can happen. And I will say through spiritual laxity, the believer can turn over more and more place, foothold, to a spiritual host of wickedness in their life. And they can wake up one day And it can seem and appear as if all control has been lost. So I think we can give so much ground to to Satan that the ability to stand, it it seems like it's, it's hardly there. And yet, what we need to do is we need to begin to resist him. We need to begin to walk in obedience. We need to put on the armor of God and begin to take back that ground. From the Lord, and we will be victorious. Walking in sobriety and obedience to the Lord is going to ensure the believer will be ready for every season of temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 12 through 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except is common to man. 
But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The way of escape comes early. The way of escape comes early. If you give Satan 10 years of place in your life, that escape can nearly, it's not. But as you look out, it can seem like it's not even there anymore. It's there. And you need to, talk, you need to go confess and you need to sit down with the brother and sister. You need to talk it through and you need to begin to walk out of this. But if you are truly a believer, exorcism is not what is needed. Um, abiding in Jesus is what is needed. And watch what will happen. So lastly, we're going to talk about Satan. And I don't have as much to say about him because we kind of already talked about this as we go. But he's the leader of the fallen angels. He's mentioned 18 times in the Old Testament, 36 times in the New Testament. Um, his name, personal name, is Satan. His uh, title is Devil. Um, and this is more of, you know, we refer to him as Satan. And his existence, that he exists, is, is so clear. Um, we've already read about him a couple of times. Um, every writer of the New Testament mentions him. Seven books of the Old Testament refer to him. Um, Jesus himself refers to him 25 times in the gospel. This adversary is not the personification of evil or a reflection of trouble that we can find ourselves in. He has an intellect. He has a will. He has emotions. He is described as one who, with personal pronouns. He possesses personhood like the angels. And Satan is real, and Peter and many others warn us about his desire to overtake us. So Satan exists. Where do we find him to be created? Uh, when did he come on the scene? Well, we already read Matthew 12, 24, that he is a leader of fallen angels. He would have been created at the same time as all the other angels, Job 38, 6 and 7, sometime that they were able to observe creation, so prior to that. Um, and please know this, Satan is not the counterpart to God. He is a created being. So just you need to understand that. Uh, God has no equal. Um, he is altogether holy. Now, I believe you can find some references in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 um, that give us some important information about the fall of Satan. Now, some will look and say, no, these are talking about local leaders. And um, I would agree with you, they are talking about local leaders, but just like in many other places, um, local leaders can also have a demonic force or association with them. We see in Scripture that a local personage can um, relate to somebody later. King David is often referred to in his day in certain aspects of his reign, but it looks forward to the greater fulfillment in King Jesus. Um, maybe you can remember when um, uh, the angel speaks of fighting with the, the prince of Persia in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, um, and that he needed to have Michael come along and help him. So um, there, there was a prince of Persia, but there also was this force behind it. 
Um, and so in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19, in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, you can read, and I'm just for the sake of time, I'm just going to have you go, and you can read about the fall. You can add information to your understanding uh, of Satan and who he was and add his creation. But let me just at least give you the Isaiah passage. I'll let you read Ezekiel on your own. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. You can see the pride. You can see why he fell. Um, Again, you can get some insight into the creation of these angels, Satan himself. Um, Ezekiel 28, verses 16 and 17. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence and within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane, profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroy, destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You're corrupted, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before the kings that they might gaze at you. Again, the fall of Satan, Revelation 12.4. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. Those are the angels. And threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So you're thinking of Mary about to give birth to, to Jesus and Satan is there. So... That he fell is, is, is found in many places. Well, the activities of Satan don't differ much from the activities of the demons. So um, this is something you can read. He's at work to stop redemption. We see this in the Old Testament with barren women. We see this with Isaac when he's um, giving away uh, Rebekah to Abimelech. We see this in Haman's desire to wipe out the entire people of Israel to stop redemption. And he's, he's trying all the way, even at the birth of Jesus. Today, Satan is trying to, as we already said, blind people, devour the believer. But again, remember, we have overcome. So what is the end? Last point. What is the, the end of Satan? What's his destiny? He's going to be judged. He's going to lose. Satan has been unsuccessful in all of his attempts to stop the plan of God's redemption, and he will only continue to fail. The believer today, we continue to wrestle against Satan and his demonic horde, but just think about it, when we are in heaven, that wrestling will no longer go on. It will come to an end. The book of Revelation, we are told that after Jesus comes back, he's going to bind Satan and throw him into a pit for a thousand years, and he'll be chained up. And he will not be able to have the influence that he did. But when that thousand years is up, he will be released to go and deceive those that were born during that thousand year reign. Not believers, but those that were physically born during the thousand year reign of Christ. Revelation 20 verses 2 and 3 says, He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, some say that Satan is bound right now. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, 
I love you, brother, sister, if that's your position, but I'll, I like what my pastor said, Pastor Chuck said, if Satan is bound and in a bottomless pit, it is a shallow pit with a very loose chain. Um, so don't believe that that is the case. But at the end of this, um, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, you can read it on your own. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and be tormented day and night forever and ever, and he will be done. And that's how it will end. Angels, demons, Satan are those beings that are God has created in that unseen realm that at times will make a physical manifestation. The idea that all of these beings were created by God and were good that's established in Scripture. Then they fail, a Satan, and he led a third of them in that fall and in that rebellion. But those who remain true are ministering to believers today. And one day the Lord's going to come back and he's going to shut down the entire dark realm. And they will have no more power and no more influence. And I can't wait for that day to come. To be in the presence of the Lord in that glorified body. And to never be tempted by myself, by them, or the world around me. Can you even imagine what amazing deliverance that is going to be? To conclude with, Satan has been defeated, but we need to gird up every day, Ephesians 6. And we need to put on the full armor of God and do everything that we can to stand. Because the evil day is coming. When is it? You don't know. It could be tomorrow. It might have been today. So we need to be fully suited up and dressed and ready. Worship team, you can stay where you are. I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. Um, and um, listen, the one thing I do want to say as we close, if you've given place to, to Satan or you feel like you are, are being harangued and harassed by him, he cannot possess you. But if you feel like that is the case, or you would even say, I, I believe that this affliction in my body, I, I, I wonder if maybe this is a, a spiritual thing. Then you know what? Pastors will, will be up here. We would love to pray for you because we know who is one. And it is the Lord. And he is victorious. Father, thank you for your word and for your truth. Thank you, Lord. I mean, you give us so much information about so many things, Lord. It truly is amazing the way you have opened up the, the world you've created that we can see and that we cannot see, and you have told us what to think about it and how to walk and how to stand. We thank you, Lord, um, for your love for us. You sent your son. But, Lord, we thank you for those ministering spirits that you have sent to minister to us who are the inheritors of salvation. Lord, um, thank you that you are caring for us on even that level. I pray, Lord, that we would walk in the freedom and the liberty that we have and the victory that your Son has won at the cross. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.